In times of tragedy, where do you turn for hope? All right. 20 years ago today, there were several people waking up wondering, how do I rebuild my life? Where, where do I find hope? We, Jen and I just watched a documentary last night, and there were 100 babies born to men who had died on the events of 9-11, post-9-11. So they were born post-9-11, 100 of them. And this documentary followed around four of them, four children that had died, or sorry, four children that were born to fathers who had died. If you want to cry, go home and watch that. Uh, it's pretty sad. But 20 years ago, today, people were waking up in the midst of tragedy wondering, where do I find hope? 15 years ago, today, my family was gathered around in my little townhouse along with a pastor and a few people from our church community, thinking through how will I rebuild my life because my wife had died the night before. Where do you find hope in the midst of tragedy? I think the answer, God, in the midst of tragedy is one of those easy defaults. Now, don't get me wrong, it's not easy. The going through the tragedy is not easy. But when you're going through a tragedy, when you're thinking, how do I rebuild my life? To find comfort in God is where we go. God uses the pain to drive us to Him, and we find comfort in Him. But what about in the mundane? What about in the day-to-day -day of life? What about in the small attacks on the faith here and there? Where do you turn? When the culture is polarized and you see one side that you just can't even make sense, how on earth would they even believe that? Where do you turn for hope? Is it in your side of the political spectrum? Maybe if you just presented your argument well enough. So, so my hope is really in my arguments. When the political temperature heats up, where do you turn? I think it's a lot easier at that point to stop turning towards God and start turning into man-made ideologies or political parties. The first century Christians, the first century church, lived through Nero. Nero was a horrible emperor who were, he killed Christians by the handful. He fed them alive to lions. He lit them on fire to light up his gardens at night. And in the midst of that persecution, they clung to God for comfort because they knew that's the only place comfort was going to come. But now, in Revelation, John is writing, about 50 years later, Nero's done, but Domitian is on the scene. He's the Caesar, and he is requiring everyone to join the emperor cult, meaning 
worship Caesar. And, and if you don't worship Caesar, we're not going to light you on fire. We're not going to feed you to the lions. We're just not going to let you participate in trade. We're going to kind of ostracize you, put you on the fringes of society. Yeah, we'll let you live, but you're not going to thrive within this culture. You'll be blacklisted. And the temptation was to put their sights on man. The, the temptation was either to say, okay, we'll give in just enough so I can still feel comfortable. You know, I, I'll, I'll say I, Caesar is God, but I won't really mean it. I'll jump through the hoop, but just enough to feel comfortable and not really mean it in my heart. It's in the midst of this that John writes Revelation. And that is what we're going to start studying today. Last week, we looked through the background information. We, we dug into the history, the genre. Today, we start. So turn with me, if you will, to Revelation. We're going to start in Revelation 1. Revelation is a prophetic, apocalyptic letter, meaning it is a letter written to churches, and it is a prophetic letter, meaning it is speaking as though God is speaking, and it is also apocalyptic, meaning it is a revealed or uncovering so it, it, it kind of combines three different genres into one. We're going to start off today, verse 1, and go through 8, which is called the prologue. So we're not getting into the visions yet. This is simply the prologue that will have a prophetic introduction from 1 to 3. And this is a unique letter, because there's no other letter where you see a, a prophetic introduction, and then right following the prophetic introduction is an apocalyptic introduction. So he goes through one introduction, and then he goes through your traditional uh, apostolic introduction, and then we get into this doxology. And the, in this doxology, we're going to start to find themes throughout the book. It is written to give that first century Christian hope in the midst of not heavy persecution, but in the midst of this wearing you down persecution. In the midst of this, you're a fool if you believe it, join our side, we're not going to kill you, but we are going to make your life uncomfortable type of persecution. And so we begin, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and made us a kingdom 
priest to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will well on account of him, even so. Amen. I am the Alpha and Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. All right, so he's starting to paint a picture for us. Right off the bat, John's introduction begins to paint a picture. The picture is, look, Caesar claims to be God. Caesar claims to have all authority. Caesar says there's no other name on earth that can save than the name of Caesar. But we know something Caesar doesn't. And there's something even greater. There's someone even greater. And that's the picture he's starting to paint. So we start off with the revelation of Jesus Christ. So some people will say the revelation of John. This, that, technically, that's not correct. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Revelation is apocalypsis. That's the word for a revelation here. Apocalypsis. And it simply means unveiling or uncovering, meaning this is something that was not previously known. There was hints about it. Jesus talked a little bit about it, but it wasn't fully uncovered until Jesus uncovered this to John. So it is the revelation of Jesus Christ, meaning Jesus Christ gave this revelation to to John, which God gave him. So we're starting to see a little bit of an order of how this comes down the pipeline. First, it's God the Father that gives it to to Jesus, and Jesus is going to reveal it to John, but he's going to use a messenger to reveal it to John. So God gave him to show his servants. Notice the plural there. God didn't just give it to John. John. God gave it to Jesus to give to John to share with all who are called Servants. This word servant here is doulos. We've talked quite about it, quite a bit about it every time we open an epistle because most apostles address themselves as a slave of Jesus Christ. A, a doulos is a slave. Someone who has sold themselves into slavery. We might say like an indentured servant. That might be the language we use today. But someone who, who has sold themselves into slavery saying, I'm no longer going to be the one that calls the shot in my life. So that's what's going on here. John is also referred to as a servant. And what is John saying? He's saying, I'm no longer going to call the shot in my life. I'm no longer master of my life. It is now Christ who is my master. I will submit my will. I will submit my desire to him. And so he's writing to this letter to all who call themselves slaves, who have said, look, I tried to do things my way, and my way got me messed up, man. I'm not doing my th- things my way anymore. From here on out, I'm going to do things God's way. I'm going to be a slave. He is my master. I will submit to him. So he wrote this. He, God the Father reveals to Jesus, who reveals to John, who is to give it to us. The things that must soon take place. So this this little reference here, the things that must soon take place, is a reference to the last days. So we see that a lot throughout the, the, the letters, the epistles, this term, the last days, the things that must soon take place. And what it's a reference to is 
uh, this, what we call the last dispensation. So sometimes we read that and we think, well, the apostles didn't know what was going on. They thought that Jesus was going to come back like tomorrow because they keep on using like soon and the last day. But it's 2,000 years later and he still hasn't come back. Well, that's because we don't quite get the reference. The reference here is the last days is the last dispensation before the tribulation. So this last era, the last era, this these last days or this what soon will happen is a reference from any moment in time from when Christ is raised to when he comes back. Could have been two days. We know that's not true. Could be a 2,000. Could be 3,000. We don't really know what the timeline is. So what the apostles did is they just referenced it to the last days, this last time period. So that's what he's getting at here. Things that must soon take place is a reference to this last time period. It could happen at any moment in this last time period. We'll get to that in just a little bit again. So, he made it known by sending his angels to his servant John, to his slave John. So, we've got God the Father reveals it to Jesus. Jesus uses his angels to reveal it to John, who then is going to write it down and reveal it to us. That's how it's going to come down the pipeline to us. And then he says, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. And what he's getting at here is that John was faithful in writing what he saw. That's, that's basically what verse 2 means, is that John had this vision. It was revealed from God to Jesus, from Jesus, through angels to John, and that John is going to faithfully write it down so that we may understand it. That's what he's getting at. He's saying, I'm not lying about this. It's not that I just made it from the figment of my imagination. It's not that I just wanted to write this to, to make a big code about how much I hate Rome. It's none of that. He's faithful to the message that God gave, God the Father gave to Jesus, which then used angels to give to him. That's verse 2. Verse 3, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. So what he's getting at here is, uh, there, there, not everybody had a Bible. Man, we are so spoiled <laughs> with, with our access. I mean, I don't know about you, but I've got multiple uh, Bibles that are uh, physical. But even beyond that, I have access on my phone to you know almost every translation that is known to man. They didn't always have that. The early church, and for, for much of the church's history, they had to share. And so what they would do is they would gather together as the saints, and they would come together, and one would read. And the rest would listen. And so this is, what he, this is the reference that he's getting at here. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the word. So he's writing this letter. He's going to send it out to different churches, and he... he his idea is that it's going to be spread through these churches. We'll get into that more in just a second. But that, that these churches are going to share this letter, and they're going to read this letter aloud, and the, the congregation will listen to the letter. That's one of the reasons why anytime we have a letter that's short enough and we have the time, I like to read through the letter. Because that's how the original audience would have experienced it. I think it's uh, kind of a neat way that we can... Uh, experience something the early church experienced as well. So that's how it worked. 
So he's saying you are blessed. Blessed meaning to be highly favored. You're highly favored if you read this. You're highly favored if you hear this. But then he goes one step beyond just reading and hearing. It's one thing to read. It's one thing to hear. But then he adds on, and who keep. This word keep here means to heed or conform to. You might say that it was trusting or a trust that produces obedience. So it's not just a matter of hearing, it's not just a matter of reading, but it's a matter of trusting these words so much so that it produces obedience in our life. And then when we do that, we are blessed. We are highly favored. And I think a big portion of how we are highly favored is this book gives us, this letter gives us hope. And when we have hope, we are highly favored. Not that we have earned the favor, but we actually can thrive in our life. We can flourish in our life because we have hope. There is a reason why our country right now is so divided and is so hate-filled. Because when your only hope is in a certain ideology and you see that ideology crumbling before your eyes and you see another side attacking that ideology and you're like, what? This world is going to end because of that group. And you see all of your hope being placed in that group. You lose all hope. And what happens when you lose hope? You have nothing left but bitterness. But we are not those people. We can watch the world go down in flames and still have hope because of this letter. So when we take this letter to heart, even when we feel like America is not going to last, we can still have hope. I was talking, I, I met a guy at the park just this week and I was talking with him about it. He had, he had a restaurant in Prescott a family business. When COVID hit, it didn't survive. His wife got a job up here, so they moved up here. He hasn't found a job yet. And he was telling me he's just hopeless. He's like, this world, it's just, it's going to hell. I said, well, where do you find hope? I don't know where to find So we started talking about this. Because I, it's not that I'm blind. I see what you see. I see what he sees. But I can still have hope. And I have hope because I can heed or keep or take these words to heart. And when I take these words to heart, I can have hope, and that hope means I'm blessed. So, blessed are those who read aloud the word of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and keep what is written in it, for the time is near. And this, once again, is, an, is a reference to what, we, what theologians like to call Christ's imminent return, meaning that we're living in the last days. The last days is any time from when Christ rose from the dead till when he comes back, and the idea is, he can return at any moment. 
We don't know when that return will be. There are a lot of pastors, or I should say a lot of people, that like to get kind of caught up in reading the signs of the times, and then they start projecting when Christ will return. That's been happening since the first century. Okay? I'm going to tell you one thing. I could do the same thing. And if you're coming here and you're like, oh, they're studying Revelation. We better get in on this because they're going to let us know when Christ is going to return. You're going to be greatly disappointed. Because that's I'm not going to like start reading the signs of the time to tell you that Christ is coming. And I'll tell you, you would be greatly disappointed even if I did that. Because I'll be wrong. So I'm just going to tell you right now, we're not going to get into that as we read through Revelation. We know that his, his return is imminent. It could happen at any moment. So I'm not going to start reading into the signs of the times. I don't know when it's going to be. But I know that no one else does. It could happen today. It could be another 2,000 years. We just don't know. But we know that it could happen at any moment. And that should inspire us. That should spur us along to live like it's going to happen today. Because we don't know it could possibly happen today. So that's the the introduction, the, the, the prophetic introduction. Then we move on to the apostolic greeting or introduction that we find in most letters or epistles from the apostles. John and we, we talked about this quite a bit last week, that this is John, the son of Zebedee, the one who wrote the Gospel according to John in 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, to the seven churches that are in Asia. So this is a, a specific set of churches that he's writing to. He's gonna, we're going to lay that out here in a couple weeks. He's going to address each one. So we know that there are seven specific churches that he's writing to, but he's also writing to, in general, every church throughout the history of the church. So there are two different types of churches when we talk about churches. There is the universal church. The universal church includes every Christian from the beginning of the church up until now. That's the universal church. But there are also local churches. The local church consists of a group of saints that gather together to spur one another on, to encourage each other, to help each other grow in God's grace. So he's writing to seven specific local churches, but he's also writing to the church in general. So there's a couple ways that we know he's writing to the church in general. One is that the the number seven is the number of completion or number of perfection. So God created in six days, on the seventh day, he took the day off, so we see the seven-day week. That gives us the idea, or that we see that throughout the rest of Scripture, that seven is the number of completion. It can also be the number of perfection. So, the idea then is that these seven churches, and a lot of theologians have tried to figure out why these seven churches. I'm not going to venture why. I'm just going to say that we know that when he includes the number seven, He's not just writing to these churches, but what he's getting across is that this is for all churches. So he's writing not just to seven churches, but he's writing this to you and to me to take to heart. And then he begins, grace to you and peace. This is your 
typical apostolic epistle greeting. Grace and peace. And we've talked about this before, but we cannot have peace without God's grace. Peace isn't just being free from contention. This is, so this is a very Jewish term. It's shalom. And it doesn't just mean freedom from contention, but it means to actually flourish. So when you go around in Jerusalem and they say shalom, that's one way that they'll greet each other, what they're doing is they're wishing upon you not just being free from contention, but the ability to flourish in your life. And I would pose that we cannot flourish in our life without God's grace. So you may amass wealth, you may have every comfort in the world, but there will still be enmity in your heart until you accept God's grace. Jen and I were just talking this week about how we know grumpy people are not only poor people. We had just come back from some very wealthy people's house, and man, they were so grumpy. And just discontent. Your income does not dictate whether or not you're content in life. So there are very wealthy people who are discontent. There are very poor people that are discontent. There are very wealthy people that are very content. There are very poor people that are very content. What makes the difference? Recognizing God's grace in our life. And when you recognize God's grace, that he has lavished his grace upon you, you haven't earned it, then that brings shalom into your life. That helps you have the ability to flourish, whether you have every comfort in the world or not. So, grace and peace go together. We cannot have peace, we cannot have shalom without grace. And so he's wishing upon them grace and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the, fa- and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Now, this is a very Trinitarian piece of scripture here. So if you've ever gotten in an argument with someone about the Trinity, this is one place you can go. For a, so there are three references here, who is and who was and who is to come. That is a very specific reference to God the Father. But we don't just see God the Father, we also see the seven spirits who are before his throne. Now there's been a little bit of debate about who the seven spirits are, but I go back to what is set, what is the number seven referencing to? It's a reference to completion or perfection. So this is, the idea that this carries is the perfect spirit who is before his throne. Well, who is the perfect spirit? That would be the Holy Spirit. And not only that, but also from Jesus Christ. We're going to get into how he describes Jesus Christ in a second, but I'd go all the way back to grace and peace to you from him. Notice it doesn't say from each one, but it is a reference to God as one. And then he goes on to explain each part of the Godhead, or reference each part of the Godhead. So we've got God the Father, God the Spirit, and God the Son all laid out and described as one person. All right, so 
from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. So we now get to see, and this is where the themes of the book start to get laid out. Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. The word witness here is uh, martyrous, and it means faithful unto death. Faithful unto death. It's where we get the term martyr from. So Jesus was a faithful witness, meaning that he faithfully witnessed on God's behalf. He faithfully testified about who God is on his, during his earthly ministry. He faithfully told the truth about God all the way unto his death. So we see what Jesus did in the past, and then this is going to be a theme that plays out throughout the rest of Revelation, talking about faithful witnesses. But not only was he a faithful witness, telling the truth about God unto his death, but he was also the firstborn of the dead. And this is a reference to Christ's authority or sovereignty over death, which once again will become a theme that we see throughout the rest of the letter, and also should be a theme that gives us hope. So we have a theme of being faithful witnesses, and that's going to be something that we should, an example that we should follow. And then we have this, uh, this theme of being sovereign over the dead, which gives us hope that we don't have to fear death. And then finally gives us the ruler of kings on the earth. So we see that Although there are many people that claim to be kings, there are many different maybe things that, that desire to be a king over your life, people that want to be a king over your life, all these small, I would say, tyrants that want to control you, there is one true king of all. Now this is going to be a direct reference back to Caesar, because what is Caesar's claim? That he has control over your life, that he is king. But what does Christ claim? That he is the true king. One thing that we do is oftentimes, especially as the, the political temperature begins to heat up, we begin to tor- turn towards other kings. We begin to turn to let other things rule in our life. In America, oftentimes, political parties become idols. And we begin to follow the political party off the political edge. But Jesus is the ruler of all those kings. Jesus has all final authority. And what he's getting at here is though he has... He has been inaugurated as the king, meaning he has the title. He has not asserted that final authority yet. But this will be one of the themes that we follow when he does assert his final authority. And then we get into a doxology. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sin by his blood and made us a kingdom of priests, to his God and Father. To let's stop there. <laughs> so uh, this this uh, love here is written in a present substantive with a participle, and really what that's getting at in the Greek is that his love brought him to action. So it's not just that he had this deep emotion for us. 
It's that this deep emotion drove him to an action on our behalf. And then he explains what that action is. Because he poured out his blood, right? So what does that do? Because each one of us have rebelled against God at some form, because each one of us have shaken our fists in rebellion and said, forget you, God, I want to be the master of my life. Each one of us deserves eternal separation. And that rebellion in the first place separated us out so that we became slaves to what's called sin. The Bible in, uh, in the Greek, sin is hamartia, and it means to have missed the mark. So each one of us has missed the mark. We are imperfect. And what's interesting is missing the mark, that behavior then, becomes our new master. Have you ever wondered why you do the thing that you hate? Have you ever been at, up at night and you just hated your behavior that day and you swore to yourself you'd never do that again? And that night as you were just living in shame, you said, never again will I turn back to that. And yet, the next day, you find yourself doing that again. It's because you're a slave to that sin. You're a slave to that hamartia. But what did Christ's love compel him to do? Pay the price for our sin. And when he paid the price for our sin, he freed us from our sin. So you no longer have to have that sin as your master. You no longer have to turn back to that thing that you hate. But instead, you can turn towards Christ and be free. But not only did He free us from our sin, He made us a kingdom priest to His God and Father. This idea of priest is, in, in ancient Israel, the priests were the one with access to God. And what he's getting at here is, you no longer need anyone to give you access to God. You have access to God. If at any time you are following someone that, that claims that you have to use them for access to God, that, that you can't access God yourself, but you have to go through them first, they are twisting Scripture and their goal is to manipulate you. Run. You have access to God. Oftentimes people think a pastor has like a special prayer line. I don't have a special prayer line. Well, maybe I could say I do have a special prayer line because I have access to God, but you have that same special prayer line as well. You don't need me for access. You are a priest. You have access to God. So he's made us a, a priest to his God and Father and then he says, to him be glory and dominion. Meaning, meaning, to him he has all honor and all power forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds. This coming with the clouds is really a reference to in those days when war, when, when uh, countries were coming to war, they would ride in chariots, and those chariots would kick up clouds of dust. It reminds me of when we used to live in Winona, and I'd look down, we lived on a, on a hill, and I'd look down into Dhoni Park, and when uh, it hadn't rained in a long time, what did I see? One big cloud of dust. Now I live in Dhoni Park, and I live in that big cloud of dust. But that's what the chariots would do, would kick up that cloud of dust. And so this is a reference to God coming, preparing for war and judgment. 
So he is coming with judgment. It's a warning that God who has all dominion, all power, all authority, all sovereignty, who is the ruler of all kings, is coming in judgment. And every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. Now once again, we have seen this general and specific kind of play out earlier with the seven churches, but we also see it play out here. Even those who pierced him. The very specific is all those, the Romans and the Jews who put him on the cross. They will see him. But the general that he's getting at is every single one of us. Because Christ willingly went to that cross for your rebellion. To pay for your rebellion. To free you from your sin. So there's a very specific the Romans and Jews who put him on the cross, and there's the general, every single one of us. And all tribes of the earth will well on account of him. Even so, amen. The term amen means I agree, or so be it. And what he's doing here is testifying once again that this is the truth. And not only is it the truth, but it's a truth that we can be excited about. And as if to put an exclamation point on this statement, he quotes God right here. I am the Alpha and the Omega. That's the beginning of the Greek alphabet and the end of the Greek alphabet. But it has more than just the beginning and the end. It has everything in the middle as well. So this term, the Alpha and Omega, isn't just that he's the first and the last. It's that he is sovereign over all. says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Now, who is and who was and who is to come is an Old Testament reference, but what John has done here is he's changed it. It used to be who was and who is and who is to come. Because that's the past, who was, who is is the present, and who is to come is the future, right? And so once again, we see that God is eternal but he's writing to people who are in present danger, who are being manipulated in the present. And what he's saying is, yes, God is the God of the past, and he did miraculous things, and God is the God of the future, and he will do miraculous things, and he will come in the cloud of judgment, but he is also the God of the here and now. And we can trust him in this moment. Where do you put your hope when tragedy strikes? Where do you put your hope in the day-to-day mundane debates? Where do you put your hope as the political temperature heats up? Is it in the one who is and who was and is to come. Dear Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is trustworthy, that it is something we can testify to, and we pray, Lord, that you would help us to take it to heart. That we wouldn't just hear it, that we wouldn't just read it, but that we would trust it in a way that would produce obedience. In your name we pray.